Hello, and welcome to Superbugs and You, true stories from scientists and patients around the world. This podcast series will focus on exploring the threat of antimicrobial resistance, which occurs when bacteria, viruses, fungi, and parasites change over time and no longer respond to antibiotics and other medicines. In other words, they become superbugs. In this podcast, we will have discussions with patients, physicians, and scientists to find out what's causing antimicrobial resistance, how it affects the lives of ordinary people, and most importantly, what can we do to stop it? This series is co-created by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota and the Antimicrobial Resistance Fighter Coalition. I'm Dr. Marty Peterson, and I've spent 25 years focused on this topic, both as an educator and researcher. I will be your host for this series. Welcome back. In this episode, we discuss the importance of antibiotics in the fight against cancer. We will explore the ways that antimicrobial resistance impacts treatment for some of the most vulnerable patients, such as those undergoing cancer treatment or receiving bone marrow transplants. A recent survey of oncologists showed that 95% of them worry about the impact of superbugs on the future of cancer treatments. And one in five patients receiving chemotherapy will have a bacterial infection. In this episode, you will hear directly from a patient who had a bacterial infection while fighting cancer, from frontline clinicians, and from a researcher driving policy at a national level. My name is Russell McGowan, and I live in Canberra, Australia. I'm a long-standing bone marrow cancer survivor. My story is, um, is one of a medical miracle combined with bouts of iatrogenesis, so harm that's occurred to me as a result of my treatment. Um, But I've learned some lessons from this, and that's what I want to pass on. Can you start from the beginning and describe how you found out about your diagnosis? So I was a healthy male in my early 40s when I was diagnosed with um, myelofibrosis, a bone marrow cancer. Um, um, I was married and the father of three young daughters at the time, and um, I had unexplained um, anemia that was affecting my ability to run. So I um, I got checked out, and um, eventually, after a, a bit of toing and froing, after six to twelve months, I got a diagnosis of the um, myelofibrosis. The um, Proposed solution was a bone marrow transplant, which was some fairly heavy-duty stuff for somebody who hadn't interacted with the um, health system particularly up until that time. I um, had to move out of state for um, my bone marrow transplant, and um, uh, I discovered that one of my sisters who lived in, in England was a match, and so I had to wait until she'd given birth and could come out. So it was quite a complex and delayed procedure. But um, they decided to take my spleen out. So I had um, drugs 
such as cyclosporin, which suppressed the immune system for some time. I had um, intravenous intraglobulin, which boosted my immune system and, um, and antibiotics. Uh, initially, Bactrim, but um, I had a uh, sensitivity to that and had to revert to the components of that um, antibiotic, which was um, Dapsone and Trimethoprim. And I was doing pretty well, and I gradually came off those medications, um, only suddenly to be hit with a uh, fulminant sepsis episode out of nowhere, and um, or taken by ambulance to uh, our local emergency department, where I um, went into um, a coma. And um, during that time, I was um, treated with various frontline um, um, intravenous antibiotics, including um, vancomycin and, and others, but they were unsuccessful. And I'd been in the coma for three days before they managed to get a culture of the, um, of the sepsis um, and decided it was pneumococcus, uh, which completely surprised them because they assumed that my inoculation against pneumococcus before my transplant would have um, stood me in good stead against that particular bacteria. But, um, of course, I lost all of my immunities when I had my, um, my bone marrow transplant. Russell, just to clarify... This this is that you had you had the vaccination. I had the pneumococcal vaccination after my splenectomy, but mm-hmm. unfortunately, um, I didn't have it again after the bone marrow transplant. So you know it was a relatively common bacteria which they hadn't uh, assumed, and I'd had no response to the uh, high high duty. Um, antibiotics, but um, eventually I, it responded to the penicillin and um, uh, I eventually came out of the coma, uh, left ICU after um, the intensive care unit after um, 10 days and, um, and recovered uh, over a um, couple of months in hospital. So it was a fairly heavy duty episode. And this is an example of why it's so important to preserve the efficacy of the antibiotics we do have, because they're so critical to your recovery. I also wanted to ask, how did this impact your family? Well, um, clearly, you know, the children were in varying degrees of um, responsiveness to what was going on with me. The oldest one was about 10, and... um, sort of um, coped all right, but the, um, the middle one was hard hit and the youngest one was sort of impervious to most of it. Uh, she was about three at the time. So they rallied around and um, uh, it, was, um, it was a difficult time, um, but um, we came through it. I decided to continue on with the advocacy which I'd started when I was first diagnosed. I, I joined a, um, a consumer group which was trying to um, inform um, patient, fellow patients about um, treatment options and um, pitfalls, things to look out for in um, subjecting oneself to the, um, the healthcare system. 
And um, I continued on with that after I was discharged from hospital from, from that episode and went on to have a, um, I guess, a career as a consumer advocate at both local hospital, uh, region and national level here in Australia. So, so basically you ended up changing the original position or career you were in and launched as a as an advocate, consumer advocate for healthcare. I, I think an important point, uh, some of the research shows in the United States that only 12% adults in the U.S. have proficient health literacy. So just trying to help individuals understand and, and gain the literacy around their own health yeah. is very important. Yes, well, uh, my health literacy improved markedly in a variety of um, uh, situations, not just in the things I experienced directly, but because I joined consumer organisations and learned from others. Uh, it's been a, um, a long journey, but yes, yes, I have been impacted. The um, bone marrow transplants are not easy to um, survive, and um, uh, I have a continuing complex chronic condition called graft, chronic graft-versus-host disease, which um, affects my stamina and um, a few other things like um, uh, liver and oral and uh, oral function and eyesight and and the digestive system, and um, I have to deal with um, the the sequelae of the um, bone marrow transplant itself, which caused this complex chronic condition, mm. and that made it impossible for me to continue my work. Uh, to which I was very committed with um, uh, Indigenous people here in Australia. How did your experience with the healthcare system impact your thoughts on the importance of antibiotics and antimicrobial stewardship? Antibiotics did play a part in my recovery, um, and it wasn't all plain sailing, but from my perspective, um, it was... What I learned was that the practitioners in the healthcare system don't always get it right, even with the best of intentions. And um, health literacy by people receiving treatment can help um, guard against um, adverse events. And um, so that's the perspective I want to bring in, into this um, discussion of superbugs and um, um, antimicrobial uh, resistance or stewardship of um, use of um, antibiotics. I'm on lifelong uh, prophylactic antibiotics, uh, low level. Um, initially, it was abacillin, a, um, a form of penicillin, but it was changed to amoxicillin um, more than a decade ago. Uh, and I, I take a low dose twice a day. I have taken my dose this morning, so I don't expect to succumb to a, a bacterial infection just yet. One of the problems with that is that um, many non-informed clinicians, including some GPs, uh, dentists and um, podiatrists, all of whom I consult and who have capacity to... Um, prescribe antibiotics, get uh, concerned when they find that I'm on continuing antibiotics. They only see um, 
antibiotics as a short-term um, fix because that's the mess- the public health message that's been promoted to minimise, avoid the risk of microbials becoming um, unable to be remediated by antibiotics. Can you explain to the listeners why you would be on those low-dose antibiotics? I have a permanently um, compromised immune system, partly because of the removal of my spleen. And um, the spleen is one of the frontline defences in the immune system. And um, that's one of the reasons why um, I succumbed to my um, fulminant sepsis in the first place, not having um, a a functioning immune system. And um, these low-dose antibiotics, according to the infectious disease specialists I have consulted over the years, um, are the best way of um, supplementing um, casual uh, microbial or bacterial infections. And um, that's why I continue to take them under medical advice. You know, I couldn't be more grateful for the um, clinicians who listen to the perspectives that I put as a somewhat informed patient, um, which um, help them think beyond just the immediate treatment that they are providing and towards the treatment of the whole individual and indeed the whole social context of that individual, um, including the family. Russell, what what advice do you give particular individuals that may be dealing with whatever types of um, diseases or a family member with a particular uh, diagnosis, if someone comes to you, what kind of advice do you give them as to where to start in their journey of becoming an advocate for their own health? Well, um, generally speaking, not to start with Dr. Google because it's very hard to to sort out um, fact from fiction in posts on social media and and indeed in... um, uh, websites. There are websites um, from methodable places such as the Mayo Clinic um, and uh, Stanford and others that have useful information. And we have equivalent ones here in Australia with um, various government departments as well. Um, so the encouragement is to become better informed um, about the nature of the um, condition that. Um, the family member or um, loved one may be um, uh, experiencing, and, and there is there is a, actually a um, an acronym um, that that helps focus people, and and there are various ones around. So it's not just the one approach, but one one I've come across recently, which is looking at the uh, adequacy of um, of medical interventions, is um, uses the term. That, Bran, B-R-A-N, where B looks at the benefits of um, of interventions, um, R, the risks of those interventions, A is alternatives to the treatments that might be being proposed, and N, the imp- uh, N is the the not intervening, um, being able to say no we don't want the intervention at this time. So 
that's the sort of message that we encourage um, informed consumers, a uh, sort of approach that we encourage informed consumers to, uh, to take. Russell, what else have you learned through your experiences in the healthcare system and, and through your work as a healthcare consumer advocate? It's really important to work, to trust your medical professional and to work together with them to ensure that things don't go wrong. And um, I, I like to use the paradigm of relationship-centred care so that the patient and the surgeon have a relationship. Mm. Now, it's not a, not a question when it comes to haematology. Haematologists and physicians generally have a relationship with their patients, but previous surgeries I'd had, I didn't have a relationship with the surgeon because you mostly only see them for a short time um, for assessment and then you're not aware of what's happening during the surgery and any post-operative contact is very confusing and not, um, not meaningful. However, if you do have an ongoing relationship, uh, if you do have an ongoing contact because it's a condition that isn't totally resolved, you get a better outcome and you get to develop this trust. There is ongoing research that um, collaboration and relationship-centred care um, improves outcomes and so I just wish all clinicians um, the opportunity to learn from that sort of research and to um, have better outcomes with their patients um, than might otherwise be the case. My name is Catherine Liu, and I currently serve as the medical director of our antimicrobial stewardship program at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. Um, it's really exciting to be here with all of you today to talk about um, antimicrobial resistance and stewardship in our cancer patients. Hi, I'm Frank Tverdik. Um I'm an infectious disease pharmacist. I work alongside uh, Catherine over at the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. Uh, mostly I focus on antimicrobial stewardship there um, and also um, work with uh, our infectious disease consult team. So I kind of see um, I kind of see the, these uh, uh, resistance issues um, and I work with cancer patients um, kind of from both angles. For our listeners, if, could you just give us some background of how do you became interested in infectious diseases as a career? It's really been um, a passion and interest of mine for as long as I can remember. I think one of the things that really um, I think is unique about infectious diseases as evidenced by these last 18 months is that it really has an impact on everybody. Um, the COVID-19 pandemic, I think, has really demonstrated that. And, and I think the um, opportunity and ability to be able to participate um, in developing strategies to combat the latest emerging infectious threats, um, COVID antibiotic resistance. I think that's it's really a privilege to be part of that and to, to be working with so many um, just incredible um, experts in various niches within um, global health, public health, um, within our own local hospitals. Um, 
it, it's, it's that that to me has really been one of the most exciting things and aspects of being um, an infectious disease physician. Um, my interest in infectious disease started when I was in uh, pharmacy residency. I kind of saw that uh, you know. Um, infectious disease was so prevalent in, you know, whatever kind of service I was working on. And I always found that um, very interesting. Um, it's also a, a field where you're, you really, really have to be a lifelong learner. Um, and that, that uh, I, I've always found like everything seems to change, um, whether that be the antimicrobials we uh, use or the, the infections. Um, and then uh, with with uh, the patient populations constantly changing as well. Um, we see, uh, you know, I've been a pharmacist now for about 15 years, and we see just even in the oncology world um, how much things have changed along the way. Um, and so I'm just, you know, feel privileged to work uh, in, in, in this patient population and, and continue to try to solve problems and, and, and um, you know, do the best for them. As you both are aware, this episode is focused on modern medicine and the threat to cancer treatments and, and, and outcomes in those patients that need, need those therapies, the risk that antimicrobial resistance has in positive outcomes for those patients. I'm, I'm going to start with you, Catherine. What is the role of antibiotics from your perspective in the care of oncology patients? Thanks, Marnie. Uh, antibiotics play a tremendous role in the care of our cancer patients. And you know, I think that they are oftentimes taken a bit for granted and sometimes overshadowed by the latest chemotherapy or advances in immunotherapy. But, but I think it's important to remember that antibiotics have in many ways transformed the care of our cancer patients. They've allowed for the prevention and treatment of once um, lethal infections during uh, their most vulnerable period. And you know, one one thing that's really unique about our cancer patients is that, as a consequence of uh, some of the chemotherapies that they receive, their body's lines of defense against infection are significantly disrupted, and we often must rely solely on antibiotics to mitigate that risk of infection. Um, antibiotics are used during cancer treatment really in three main ways. Uh, the first is to prevent inf infection from happening in the first place. So um, they are sometimes given uh, during periods when uh, patients are uh, getting cytotoxic chemotherapy, which uh, makes their white blood cell counts very, very low um, and where they are at increased risk for infection. So it is used to prevent infection during that period of time. It is also uh, used to treat suspected infection. So if a patient presents with fever, uh, antibiotics are used to, to, to treat the possibility of infection. And then finally, it is used to treat a, a, a clinical or microbiologically documented infection, an infection that's been identified. One thing that I'll mention, however, is that antibiotics are, are a double-edged sword um, in, in some ways. They, they are life-saving agents, but they can also cause harm. And you know, we'll talk a bit more about drug resistance, but, but Certainly, that's that's a concern that that we're all facing. Uh, there's also risk of drug-related toxicities, um, disruption of the gut microbiota, which um, has uh, become increasingly uh, linked to um, adverse cancer and transplant-related outcomes, um, and uh, selection of organisms such as Clostridioides difficile. So all of these things, I think, are important to consider um, as we think about how we can best use these agents wisely, so that. Um, they can, we can use them so that they can offer the greatest benefit, um, but also uh, uh, try to avoid some of these unintended consequences of antibiotic use. 
And that's a good segue into my next question for you, Frank, is, as, as Catherine mentioned, all, all the good that they provide, but it's not without challenges. So can you describe some, what are some of the main challenges that, that you deal with or you think about or considered in the treatment of these infections in, in patients with weakened immune, immune systems, such as those with undergoing cancer treatment or, or, or stem cell transplants? What, what are some of the main challenges that you've you're concerned about? Well, one of the major challenges that we see is that, um, you know, the etiologic uh, cause of a lot of these infections is very broad. So um, from a diagnostic perspective, there's a wide range of infections that can occur in an immunocompromised patient. And so um, what ends up happening is that we have to be pretty aggressive in, in, in seeking out what kind of infection could be, and, and that list is really long. So that also requires that upfront, we're going to be using drugs that might be broader in spectrum, um, might be more expansive and in, in, uh, could be more toxic um, and things like that. So we're, um, that's kind of one of the, the overarching themes in immunocompromised uh, patient care. Um, the other thing is that <clears throat> when we're talking about how um, how to get uh, how to treat an infection, uh, the the uh, immune system or immune response may not be as robust or even intact, and so really the drug therapy or other sort of interventions, surgical interventions, those things kind of need to do the bulk of the work because normally in a, in a patient who's immune competent, we can rely a bit on the immune system to help, but in in these in these patients we can't. Um, Talking about diagnostics, we also have to worry about um, there's a lot of, of concomitant sort of consequences of, of chemotherapy and things like that where patients may not have enough platelets um, or may not heal well. And so a lot of times as, we, as um, our team tries to do diagnostic procedures, the, the patients may not be able to receive those procedures because um, they may be at a bleeding risk um, or they may be at risk of not healing well. Um, the other thing is that in this patient population, we tend to see these patients excluded from major clinical trials just because they're immune compromised. And so then that um, that lends to uh, having uh, somewhat limited information in terms of how these newer drugs or even older drugs work in, in our patients because, um, again, they're, if they're excluded from those trials, we have to kind of take a pretty big leap to say um, that those apply to us. Um, and in that process uh, of of having limited um, information, that also leads to the idea that when we're thinking about things like how long to treat people, what kind of dose to use, um, those things are very uh, undefined in this population, and so that can lead to a lot of heterogeneity in the way that we practice, um, or you know, from one center to another, and so that kind of lends to um, a lot of confusion or uh, around those sort of things. Furthermore. Um, you know, there's when we're talking about infectious disease treatment as well as oncology treatment, we see that um, you know there's uh, there can be sometimes kind of uh, differing um, goals. So um, we're focused on treating infections, and 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 so um, sometimes it, it can be difficult to kind of come together and find that common ground with the oncologist in terms of how to um, you know what's best for the patient. Yeah, and cer- certainly it's the immune system being. Uh, suppressed significantly from the cancer oncology treatments, and now you're worried about infectious diseases, so you're trying to balance the two different outcomes. One of the issues is, of course, they can be infected with a drug-resistant infection. And Catherine, how would the treatment options for an immunocompromised patient, do they differ? Are there other considerations once you've identified that there's a drug-resistant infection? Drug-resistant infections are very challenging to navigate among our immunocompromised uh, cancer patients. Uh, This 
uh, definitely significantly limits our treatment options. And in many cases, when we're dealing with a drug-resistant infection, we are often led to choose agents that may be more cumbersome to administer and potentially more toxic. And one thing to note is that many of our patients with cancer also have other underlying uh, uh, comorbid uh, medical problems. Um, They may have renal dysfunction. They may also have liver um, uh, underlying liver disease or uh, dysfunction. And this may uh, create some additional challenges in trying to select um, the optimal agent uh, that would be able to treat the infection while also limiting uh, toxicity. Um, Some of the, uh, some of these agents um, are also, um, you know, most of these are have to be given intravenously, sometimes multiple times a day. So this can also, from a patient experience standpoint, uh, can also be uh, difficult to navigate. Um, sometimes we have to use more than one drug uh, in order to achieve, um, you know, a, a, a therapeutic um, a, a efficacy um, in, in managing these infections, which again can be challenging for a patient to navigate um, as well in terms of antibiotic delivery, um, particularly if they need extended therapy, sometimes the therapy needs to be continued after they get discharged from the hospital. And so navigating some of that at home uh, can be difficult. I I think one other thing I wanted to mention is that these uh, drug-resistant infections, because they are more difficult to treat, um, can also have a significant impact in terms of the patient's cancer uh, treatment. So they can it can potentially lead to delay in cancer chemotherapy. And for patients who are awaiting stem cell transplantation, that may also lead to delays in, um, in transplant because we want to ensure that that infection is appropriately treated um, before they proceed. So, so there can be significant sort of downstream consequences of these uh, drug, um, drug-resistant infections. And, and Catherine, as you mentioned in your introduction, you are the director of this of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program, and would just like to give us an idea of some of the outcomes that you've worked to optimize, some of the programs that you've put in place. Sure. So we've um, implemented a number of different initiatives within our Antimicrobial Stewardship Program since the program um started back in 2017. And I can talk a little bit about some of the areas that we have focused on. Uh, One of the areas that, um, you know, I think, as as Frank mentioned, being able to follow antibiotic resistance trends over time is really important for us. So uh, we've developed a uh, cancer center-specific antibiogram that is separate from the tertiary care center that we're affiliated with, um, University of Washington. And this is really helpful for us to guide decision-making, um, and to help support conversations with uh, providers about antibiotic choices. And, and it allows us to track antibiotic resistance over time, which is an outcome that we're, that, that we're interested in following. Um, we've also spent significant effort to developing and updating um, disease state-specific guidelines on a variety of topics, including things like um, antibiotic prophylaxis, um, managing uh, C. diff infections, vancomycin dosing and monitoring, um, and, uh, you know, management of um, other t- uh, types of common infections that we see in this population. Some of these are bacterial infections, but uh, this immunocompromised population is also at risk for uh, infections that are oftentimes not seen in the general um, uh, immunocompetent populations, such as invasive fungal infections and other viral infections. I, I want to ask you both about um, how how the pandemic the COVID pandemic and, and some of your efforts having to be shifted 
maybe more recently and then coming back, like how would they shift it away from your antimicrobial stewardship practices or were you able to maintain them? Um, this is a conversation I've had with several, several clinicians, um, especially uh, directors of stewardship programs that they, they, their efforts and resources were pulled in other directions and now they're, they're trying to reestablish where they were. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, COVID has has kind of, uh, of you know, has a way of, of kind of sucking up a lot of resources, right? Um, you know, that's the major threat right now. So I think it makes sense. You know, I mean, that's that's definitely within our wheelhouse and it's definitely, a, you know, there's stewardship that goes along with that. So um, I think it's appropriate. Um, along those lines, uh, you know, I think, you know, one thing I think that the the uh, pandemics kind of highlighted is that you know a lot of the the strategies that we've done um, to put in place algorithms, pathways, education, um, even you know some of our EMR sort of uh, um, alerting and in in kind of nudging. I mean, all these things um, and all the uh, all this infrastructure that we've you know spent a lot of time on. I think you know even when we're kind of pulled away in different directions, I think we've seen at least in our um, in our practice that, you know, a lot of that stuff persists. Um, you know, if, if I think if you build those sort of things right, um, we see that, you know, uh, practice still is is kind of adhering to, to um, you know, kind of what we were hoping uh, to do, you know, in terms of like our, our, our pathways, you know, our, is neutropenic fever being managed uh, correctly, um, appropriately? Are the antibiotics, um, you know, like our carbapenems, are they being used appropriately? And that, you know, I think we've we've seen that that a lot of those things ha- have persisted. Um, so really, I think it's just, yeah, you know, certainly it's just, you know, every day you wonder where where to spend your time, and I, I think that can be that can be difficult. But um, I think it does, it, you know, at least from our standpoint, I think it does, um, these sort of more passive interventions do go a long way in, in terms of supporting us. The, the other thing I should mention is that I think stewardship has played a role in in helping to navigate um, some of the newer therapies for COVID that have come out in, in terms of providing guidance um, on how to use these agents, uh, things like remdesivir, dexamethasone, the monoclonal antibodies, um, you know, there, there may be an oral antiviral in the, in the horizon as well. So I, I definitely do see a role of stewardship in continuing to help to educate and develop guidelines in terms of how, how to use these agents, um, even things like diagnostic testing for, um, for, uh, for SARS-CoV-2 initially early on when testing, when there was limited access to testing, uh, stewardship was involved again in that diagnostic testing um, component and, and trying to provide guidance on, on how, to, um, you know, how to test, how frequently to test. Um, again, working in very, very close collaboration with infection prevention. So, so I, I do think that stewardship has found kind of new roles uh, within the, the pandemic as well. And um, so I, I think that's also been, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, a silver lining um, in, in this and in that, in that there are, um, you know, there are multiple different ways that we can contribute as stewardship to the pandemic. All right. Um, my name is David Hyun. Um, I'm a project director for the Antibiotic Resistance Project 
at the Pew Charitable Trust, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan policy research organization. Um, our project um, works to find solutions um, through uh, various policy options uh, available to us um, to address the um, growing public health threat of antibiotic resistance. Um, prior to joining Pew, um, I practiced as a pediatric infectious disease physician at, uh, at the Children's Hospital here in D.C. and um, also led the antibiotic stewardship program, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about <laughs> a little bit later. But that's really how I got interested and kind of set my career track um, in this area of how do we find ways to, you know, make sure we're judiciously using our antibiotics and how do we, um, you know, fight fight and combat this um, this serious public health threat called antibiotic resistance. So we're talking today about antibiotic resistance, as well as how, it's impact, how it impacts successful cancer therapy outcomes. Why, why is antibiotic resistance such a threat? We have frequently used the phrase that antibiotics underpin modern medicine. And I, I can't think of any, any better example of what that means other than looking at how antibiotic resistance impacts patients with cancer. Um, Patients who have cancer um, have so many risk factors that contribute th that make them a very vulnerable part of our population to not only uh, getting a you know the, having a high likelihood of contracting one of these infections, but also having a very serious outcome, severe disease and even deaths um, occurring because of these infections. And a lot of that is. Because as you probably know, um, patients who are, especially patients who are going under, undergoing cancer treatment therapy, whether that's chemotherapy or radiation therapy, or, or even in some cases, stem cell transplants, their immune system is during those treatment process, their immune system is suppressed. And that leaves them very vulnerable to um, the effects of a foreign pathogen like, like bacterial infections. And if we can't, tr if we don't have the antibiotics available to treat these. If these bacteria happens to be a very resistant kind, that just makes it even more makes it more dangerous. The other factor is um, a lot of the cancer patients have frequent exposure to the healthcare environment, and that's just part of their treatment. They're frequently admitted to the hospital. They are they have many clinic visits for um, for their cancer treatments, and you know the more exposure, the more contact you have with the healthcare um, environment. Um, that in itself is also a risk factor for potentially um, contracting an infection. And lastly, they have a lot of medical devices uh, that are placed on them, you know, and the most common example, I think, is the central venous catheter, essentially a central IV, you know, a, a venous line in there for months because they need that to, for infusion of their treatment and, and, and blood tests. But when you have a medical device, a foreign device, medical device like that placed in, in, you know, for a long time, that is also a risk factor for an infection. And we, you know, I think one of the most common types of bacterial infections we see uh, that, that clinicians see in the cancer patient is um, central, what we call central line infections. And when that kind of infection is being caused by a bacteria where we have very few to no um, working antibiotics against, it just raises the risk significantly and jeopardizes the chances of um, not only curing the cancer, but also it's raises the risk of deaths and um, a lot of morbidity associated with these infections. In your role as the director of the Antibiotic Resistance Project, 
part of this is that you're also you're focused on antimicrobial resistance in cancer patients and trying to preserve these antibiotics. And for the listeners, you know, what are what are some of your areas of focus and what you're trying to achieve in this space? Yeah, um, our our project focuses on two primary areas um, of of addressing. Um, this, this issue around antibiotic resistance that impacts a lot of the cancer patients. Um, the first part is making sure that trying to find a way to reduce the amount of unnecessary and inappropriate antibiotics that are being, uh, that are being used in any healthcare setting. Um, and this is important because anytime we use antibiotics, we are raising the risk. We are increasing the chance of an emergence of antibiotic resistance. It's just the way bacteria evolves. Um, the more exposure they have to the antibiotics that we have available, um, the more opportunities they have to learn how to evade those, um, those drugs, the effects of those drugs, and, and therefore they can become, they learn how to become resistant. And then they pass that quote unquote knowledge around um, the many different species of bacteria. So this is, that's why it's extremely important to in order to minimize this threat of emergence of antibiotic resistance, we have to make sure that we're minimizing as much as we can how much antibiotics we're using. And of course, the best way to do that is to make sure we you know, reduce as much as we can of how much antibiotics are being used unnecessarily while making sure that the, what the patients that do need antibiotics get the, you know, get the most appropriate and the most effective therapy. So that's one half of the equation that we work on. The other half of it is um, it's not enough to just try to reduce antibiotics use and slow down the emergency resistance because that's just buying us time. What we really need in a, on the complementary track is to have new the development and the discovery of new antibiotics come um, become available for patients and doctors to use. Um, so those two things need to work in concert. I'm just looking at a paper published in 2019 from the Antimicrobial Stewardship and Cancer Consortium. And they also brought up with stewardship, there's also the important components of having appropriate diagnostics and those two needing to be combined such that they can have the best outcomes with their stewardship programs, de-escalate, get some mm -hmm. guidelines around, around, these, um, around these practices. Is that also a component of this with, with the support of stewardship such that they have appropriate diagnostic tools available to them? Yes. Um, that has been a more recent focus of a lot of the antibiotic stewardship programs in, the ho in hospitals across the country. Um, in fact, we're starting to hear the term diagnostic stewardship um, quite a bit that's um, um, in conjunction with the antibiotic stewardship work that's ongoing. Um, trying to just drawing the line between the importance of diagnostics when it comes to making, you know, helping us use antibiotics more appropriately. Diagnostics have primarily two major, you know, pathways where it can influence antibiotic, you know, uh, antibiotic prescribing decision-making. Um, one of it is, you know, it help it, the better diagnostics we have to identify conditions or diseases that may mimic the symptoms of bacterial infections, but it's not. I think a very good example is, you know, viral infections, you know, the colds that we get. Um, sometimes it can be difficult to decide, is this, is this an influenza, you know, infection versus is this a, like a strep throat infection or something, you know, or a sinus infection, which are both can be bacterial. Um, and having diagnostics that can differentiate when antibiotic is truly 
is needed to treat bacterial infections versus those conditions that are not bacterial infections is going to be hugely important. Um, diagnostics on its own does you know, will not solve the issue. You always need to have the stewards there to help it properly interpret the, the diagnostics and, and also make sure that the antibiotic decision-making is in accordance with the results that the diagnostics give you. But that's one area. And then the other area is, especially for, you know, in, in the clinical situation quite frequently with um, cancer patients, is when, when a patient does have a bacterial infection, um, it's it's extremely important to try to identify that bacteria and test, figure out what that what their resistance pattern is as soon as possible. You know, antibiotics are started when patients start having symptoms that suggest, um, you know, for instance, sepsis or other bacterial infections. But you know, the 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 faster you can arrive at the most effective therapy, effective type of antibiotic, the better chance a patient has to in to survive that and survive from that infection. And that's where molecular diagnostics have made a huge difference. Um, you know, it used to be we had to wait two to three days um, to get not only the name of the pathogen, but get the resistance pattern of the bacteria so that we can tailor to down to the specific antibiotic that we know for sure will work. And some of these diagnostics have, depend, for some of the specific pathogens, like for instance, like MRSA, there's been, they've been able to shorten that time frame. And so the, the, the faster you arrive at the most appropriate therapy for a patient with bacterial infection, the better chance you have of curing that infection. And that's where, that's another area where um, diagnostics have, ma- have made and hopefully will continue to make a huge difference in how we optimize um, um, antibiotic treatments for patients who do have bacterial infections. So you have a unique perspective in having been a clinician, an antibiotic steward, and now you're in this role as a, as a thought leader and engaging in, in policies. So looking to the future, with antimicrobial resistance increasing, what challenges do you see that, that you're, some of your main challenges that you're up against? You know, I think, you know, one of the main future challenges that needs to be addressed when it comes to, especially when it comes to antibiotic stewardship and improving our antibiotic use is um, in the outpatient setting. Um, The, uh, you know, these are your doctor's offices, emergency departments, urgent care. We have retail clinics now, which are those clinics that are in grocery stores and your, in your pharmacies. And then um, now telemedicine. Um, And these settings collectively account for, you know, close to 80% of the antibiotics that are being used in, in healthcare settings in general. So, um, and stewardship programs, while we've seen a lot of progress made in hospitals, um, it's still a very novel concept in, in outpatient settings. And that that's going to be the next, I guess, so-called frontier of where we're trying to, um, you know, expand our, expand the antibiotic stewardship experience into, because we, you know, I think it's going to be very important to try, try to translate um, the successes that we've seen in antibiotic stewardship programs in the hospitals to the outpatient side. But a lot of that brings a lot of challenges because we're dealing with different stakeholders, very different policy levers. Um, so that's where the policy piece comes in is because we need to find a way to provide the necessary resources and support and incentives to outpatient providers um, that hospitals have been able to do for their physicians, but it's a, it's a, it's in one building, or it's not one building, but it's essentially one organization doing all that. Now you move that out to the outpatient setting, and you have hundreds and thousands of practices um, that are not all connected together. 
Um, so the chat that this is where the we believe the value of policy comes in is that there there are stakeholders and policyholders that have the reach to help all these different practices um, create antibiotic stewardship programs within their practice, you know, in, in, in their in their settings. One of the things that we are we have learned and we are continuing to learn during this pandemic is um, that something like antibiotic, you know, antibiotic resistance and antibiotic overuse, these are all entirely dependent on the rest of the public health landscape. And I think this the COVID pandemic, if we're strictly looking at this from a narrow scope of how it's impacting AM, you know, antibiotic resistance, antibiotic use, is a good demonstration of how fluid this situation is. The pandemic response itself um, is is making an impact on how antibiotics are being used. Um, we we published a study a few months ago, um, looking at how much antibiotics were being prescribed among COVID nineteen patients that were being hospitalized in the United States, and we found that over half of the patients were receiving at least one course of antibiotic during their hospitalization. Um, and when we looked at when we looked at how many of those patients were diagnosed with a bacterial infection, that number was far less. It was you know in the twenty to thirty percent range, depending on the type of bacterial infection we were looking at. So that told us that there was a lot, there was a likelihood of overuse occurring from the pandemic uh, in response to these COVID patients that were coming in, especially in the early phase of the pandemic. And it's not, it's something that you know, of course, makes sense in, of why that happened. Um, you know, clinicians in the front line were dealing with a novel pathogen, especially in the first few months that they had no um, knowledge or experience or research, you know, publication to look back on for help. So when a, a new infection like that, even if it's virus, mimics a lot of the symptoms of a bacterial pneumonia or bacterial infection, of course, they're going to get antibiotics at the beginning. Um, but this is all a good reminder that one of the challenges moving forward, when it, especially when it comes to antibiotic stewardship, of how we improve antibiotic stewardship moving forward is that we have to find a way to make it as much as we can possible crisis proof um, that that, you know, when you have in the public health emergency like the COVID-19 pandemic, um, we we need to have a system built where it can withstand this the pressures of that, that the antibiotic use um, and antibiotic resistant infections are not going to be uh, not going to become a casualty of because of the shifting resources and the attention that that, that the COVID nineteen will suck up and dominate. Um, you know, I think another example of that is uh, we've heard many anecdotal uh, stories from our partners and experts that we worked with how during the especially during the first year of the pandemic how their stewardship programs. Um, suffered from uh, resource limitations. Um, and same goes for infection prevention control and control programs. And all of this led to increased outbreaks that we've saw CDC report out of antibiotic resistant infections in the hospital. I think the very, the most prominent example I read was um, a outbreak report that CDC wrote last December from um, a cluster of New Jersey hospitals or at, um, where they saw this extremely resistant strain called a bacteria called Acinetobacter, and there was a lot of outbreaks. And uh, there, there was an outbreak that they were describing, and they concluded that one of the factors contributing to that outbreak was the the depletion of resources for the infection control program 
that previously had you know guard you know systems and guards in place to prevent those types of outbreaks from occurring. And you mentioned the diversion of resources towards COVID patients, infection control, and, and, and clinicians and antibiotic stewards, but you still had patients in the hospital being treated for cancer that were then at risk for these ant- antibiotic resistant strains. So the pandemic in itself put them even more at risk just from the resources being diverted. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure there, you know, there probably are other examples. We, we, I just focus on antibiotic stewardship programs and infection prevention control programs that we, you know, that we've heard, but the, similar things probably were happening um, during the COVID pandemic because house and we know hospitals were stretched then um, both, both on a personnel standpoint and a resource standpoint. David, thank you so much for your insights and speaking with us today. I'm happy to, and thanks for having me. At the end of each interview, I asked each guest the same question. What actions can we all take to decrease the risk of drug-resistant infections? Just the simple processes of hand washing um, had been shown to be um, effective in reducing the spread of um, resistant um, organisms. And um, hopefully, um, one of the lessons that will come out of the pandemic is that um, we need to be more vigilant about our um, hygiene. And this means both the clinicians providing care but not only those, but that um, family members and others coming into hospital are also vectors for disease spread. And we should be um, making sure that we maintain a level of health literacy amongst the general community to minimise the risks for those sorts of events to occur. As clinicians, I think we can be deliberate in, in our choice of therapy. Every and every antibiotic decision we make, I think we need to be deliberate about, you know, whether that be the dose, the choice, the duration, all those sort of things, um, I think will go a long way in, in uh, staving off uh, resistance. We need our patients to understand all of this, that all of this is kind of going on in the background and that, you know, there's this careful balance between treating, being aggressive in treating infection, but at the same time trying to prevent resistance um, and adverse effects and things down the line and how, you know, uh, we're not always going to be right, but we're trying to kind of walk that line and, you know, um, you know, to the best that we can. One of the things that, especially as we are uh, just starting to ramp up our flu uh, vaccine campaign right now. We're continuing to encourage folks to get vaccinated um, for uh, against COVID if they haven't yet already. Um, getting vaccinated uh, is is a really important way to prevent um, infections from happening in the first place. Um, and if you can prevent infections from happening in the first place, you can limit opportunities for antibiotic use. Um, the other thing I think just to mention is that um, uh, you know, a, a huge uh, burden of the, anti- the the world's antibiotic use um, actually does come from um, animal animal feeds. And so, um, you know, if you can, um, um, it may not always be possible to choosing antibiotic-free foods um, as well. I think the the probably the biggest impact everybody can make is changing how we as a population use antibiotics. 
all of us have been in that situation where, you know, we develop what we think is a sinus infection or a sore throat. And we go to the doctor's office. Um, and depending on what your past experiences have been, a lot of, lot of us may go to the doctor's office expecting an antibiotic. There, one in three of those are being prescribed unnecessarily for conditions where antibiotics has absolutely no effect on it. On it. Um, it's essentially a placebo, <laughs> placebo drug. There is a large room for improvement that we can all make a, um, a dent on and impact and, and reduce the antibiotic. And when we reduce the, the amount of antibiotics we're using, we're also reducing the likelihood of these new these resistant bacteria emerging from our community. And that in turn protects all those vulnerable patients that we talked about, including the cancer patients. You have been listening to Superbugs and You, a podcast series focused on true stories from scientists and patients around the world on the threat of antimicrobial resistance. This series is co-created by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy and the Antimicrobial Resistance Fighter Coalition. This podcast is produced by Maya Peters, Diane Flayhart, and Natalie Vestine. For more news and information on antimicrobial resistance and stewardship, check out our websites, SIDRAP, umn.edu slash ASP and antimicrobialresistancefighters.org. You can also find us on Twitter at SIDRAP underscore ASP and at AM Resistance. Thank you for listening. <laughs>